to welcome you here this evening again to our Good Friday service. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us just in a couple songs to, um, to set us up well. As we take a look into the scriptures, as we take a look into the gospel and what happened when Jesus took on the price of our sin, when he paid the price for our transgression against God. We come here gathered together on what can easily be a solemn Friday, and I think rightfully so. Tonight we look at the cross and we look at Jesus taking on our sinfulness, as we said, dying the death that we deserved for the sins that we committed against God. But what a beautiful truth that we've already walked through this evening, um, walking through the majesty of God into our guilt before him and into the beauty of the price that he paid for us. We're going to take a look at that beauty tonight, and as we do so, um, I just want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at this psalm, uh, and it might seem strange that we're taking a good Friday in the Psalms, but if you know, and as you open, you might recognize this first verse of the psalm is probably better recognized from the words that Jesus quotes on the cross, because Jesus uses this psalm as he cries out in agony and gives up his life for us. He quotes this psalm of David. And in doing so, he takes on the burden, the sorrow, and the pain that the psalmist is expressing in that psalm, and he puts it on himself. And what we might find is, in doing that, as Jesus takes that burden upon himself, he lifts it off of us. So again, tonight we're going to be looking into Psalm 22, but I want to encourage us to think about what, we might, what might be on our minds as we consider the book of the Psalms. What comes to your mind? Um, a lot of times we can reference the Psalms as the hymn book of the Bible, and we often do so, uh, because a lot of these were used in their corporate worship setting. Um, not all of them. And you might find as you finger through the Psalms, as you read through a couple of them, some of them will be pretty jarring in corporate worship. Uh, and Psalm 22 is one of those. But maybe you think of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe uh, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Or maybe another verse from Psalm 46, uh, be still and know that I am God. Uh, I think that one's more than prevalent. Uh, sometimes you walk into somebody's living room and boom, big poster. Be still and know that I am God. And some of you are like, yeah, I know that living room. It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and yet another that we, uh, that we think about, maybe Psalm 23, uh, the most quoted psalm in our daily lives. Uh, not in the Bible, but for us, yes. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Um, I went to public school my whole way through, but I remember a poster in my elementary school. Um, maybe you remember posters the same. Uh, every now and then, as you're walking down the hallway, you would see these inspirational posters of a, like, you can do it type of thing. And strangely enough, Psalm 23 made it into my public elementary school with one of those encouraging posters. It said, I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, but fear no evil. And it was a picture of a line of German shepherds for, like, police training. And there was this little cat just walking across in front of them. <laughs> but tonight we look at a psalm that doesn't offer, or it doesn't look like it offers encouragement to us. It actually looks like it offers a burden. And if we're honest, it looks a little bit dangerous to us to, for David to be 
addressing God in such aggressive words. Um, and we'll dive into exactly what those words are. But I want you to consider that the beauty of those psalms that we often think of is a lot of times we're thinking of praise psalms. Those ones that worship God for who he is, his creation, what he's doing right now, and what he's doing in the future to provide for us. And while those are amazing and have a remarkable place, they actually only make up a half of the psalm's content. I should correct myself. They actually make up a little bit, just the smallest bit more than a half of the psalm's content. But the other half of the psalms are made up by laments. If you can remember back to Jeff Arthur's message, not the one last week, but the one he did a couple months ago before that, um, he spoke out of Psalm 77 and Psalm 42, and he talked and addressed the idea of lament psalms. These psalms where the psalmist is taking a complaint to God, and they're not mincing their words. They're being pretty frank with God, and they're complaining. And that doesn't really fit our vision of the psalms as this hymn book of the Bible, this idea of praise and adoration of God, you know, these psalmists kind of, they get angry. They don't fit our purpose of the book of Psalms, the one that we've designated, but they sure do fit God's purpose. Because the truth is, God is using the book of the Psalms to reveal himself and his plan for the salvation of humanity through the trials, triumphs, and worship of his people. And Psalm 22 is one where we see God revealing himself through a trial. When you think of the Psalms, you probably don't picture a man crying out to God because it looks like he's been abandoned, but that's exactly what Psalm 22 is. David writes this Psalm out of the anguish of his heart, feeling that he needs God, but that God is nowhere to be found. Yet, as we'll find out, in the midst of this darkness, David turns to the light of praise, declaring that God's people will again flourish when God acts to save them. And tonight, as we look towards the cross, we know exactly what that act of salvation is. And it comes at a price. And what's even more profound than, than David turning from lament to praise over the course of this psalm is the fact that Jesus, when he takes on our sin, quotes this psalm. Not as the one saved by God's redeeming work, but the one who pays the price of death in order to bring that redeeming work to you and me. So with all of that in mind, we're going to open up to Psalm 22 and take a look at these words that David has to offer to us and also consider how Jesus frames this, reframes it, in order to bring about the salvation of his people. So again, I just want to encourage you guys as we read through this psalm together, pay attention for that moment where it turns from a crying out to God for help into worship just absolute adoration of who God is. Starting in verse 1. Psalm 22, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. 
All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me to trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the sufferings of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What amazing words we hear this evening. My prayer tonight is that as we dive into Psalm 22 and then also to Matthew 27 to connect this directly to what happens on the cross with Jesus, my prayer is that we can identify with this lament and praise that David expresses in this psalm. And more importantly, that in identifying with it, we would be allowed to experience the impact of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So we identify as those who transgress, those who are in need of God. And through that, we get to see the impact of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. And Lord, we thank you for what this evening means to us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that we commemorate this evening. And God, as we do so, don't allow us to feel vindicated from our sin entirely, Lord. We are those who transgress against you. Allow us to recognize that we are numbered against those who have sinned against you. So Lord, as we experience our sinfulness before you, we recognize our need for Jesus, our need for salvation from you. And as we identify with the blood of Jesus, Help us to recognize that though we are sinners, we have been saved by you, by your act that works to redeem us and to restore us to a right relationship with you. 
we again just ask that your gospel will be proclaimed, that we will be able to recognize Jesus and you for who you are and what you've done for us as we dive into your word and explore this even further. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, talking about Psalm 22, discussing what David is doing here, um, we get a good idea of exactly what this psalm is all about when we look at the first two verses. David cries out, again, just a refresher, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Again, as we mentioned just in the introduction, we probably don't want to discuss, or uh, we probably don't want to talk to God this way. We probably don't often find ourselves doing that in our prayers. But what David's doing here is he's expressing the brokenness, a feeling of being separated from God. And his struggle makes it feel like God isn't there. It's not that God isn't there. Actually, David will claim the opposite. He knows exactly what God is like. He knows exactly how God's provision works. God is always with his people. He is always providing. He's sustaining. He's delivering. That doesn't stop the feeling that things might be otherwise. David knows God's character, but feels like it's inconsistent. And our proof of that is in verse 3. Yet you were enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. In saying this, David is saying, God, I know exactly who you are. I know you're the provider of our ancestors. I know they looked to you and were delivered. But it doesn't feel like you're doing that for me. And what I want to ask us tonight is, do we resonate with that feeling, that one that David expresses? Because one of the greatest mistakes we can make when we're faced with one of these psalms is to say, whoa, whoa, David, hold on. We don't talk to God that way. I couldn't possibly interact with God that way. One of the biggest mistakes we can make with a passage like this is assuming we can't relate to it, when if we're honest with ourselves, we can. We don't know exactly what the situation is that's bringing David to this point. A lot of people have their guesses, but nobody knows exactly. And in the same way, we don't necessarily know what's going on with each other. And I don't know what's going on with you tonight, but I can promise you this. You know exactly what it's like to feel the brokenness of being separated from God. How do I know this? Because each of us lives in a world that is broken by sin. And more significantly, each of us knows what it's like because we are broken by sin. Because of our sin, we have felt the brokenness of feeling separated from God. I want to just emphasize that again. Because of our sin, we have felt the brokenness of feeling separated from God. From the very outset of Scripture, from Genesis 3, we see sin enter the world and nothing is the same. That relationship with God that Adam and Eve had in the garden is broken and it isn't restored in the entirety of the Old Testament. We track it through. We see God providing for his people, but there's still this need for ultimate salvation that just doesn't come. 
And as we go from character to character in the Old Testament, we see the need that they have for God through the times when they succeed in looking for him and then the times when we're absolutely furious with those characters because they don't look to God. And I want to posit that each of us has had that same experience in our lives where maybe there's times when we fall down at the foot of the cross recognizing exactly how much we need God. And yet for every moment like that, there's just as many, definitely more, where we don't, where we don't recognize our need for God, but it's still there. And that actually tears us up even more. But what David's doing here is he's offering a prayer to God. The, the beauty of the lament psalms that a lot of people don't recognize is each one of them is still a prayer to God. Even though they address God in a way that's uncomfortable to us, these people are all praying. All of these psalmists are praying to their God for deliverance. They're frustrated with God, yes, but they're praying. And David's prayer is a prayer of recognition that salvation only comes from God. All of us are in need of salvation out of our sin that can only come from God. And David recognizes that. Um, if we look to verse 19, we can see that. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. David knows his help can only come from God. So he turns in prayer, asking God to save him. He identifies and recognizes exactly how far he feels from God. And he says, God, you're the only one who can save me out of this. And then what does he do? He worships. This turn between verse 21 and 22 is remarkable. Um, we'll read it first and then we'll discuss it. After, saying, after crying out to God, do not be far from me, you are my strength, he goes down and in verse 22 says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. What's amazing is that turn in Psalm 22 is emblematic of a couple things. It's first emblematic of Psalm 22, uh, as there's this pattern of lament to praise. We see in the, uh, in the first 20 verses or 21 verses of Psalm 22, there's this recognition of need for God, but it's all expressed in lament. And then as soon as we hit verse 22, we go to praise and we don't turn back. It's remarkable. This pattern of lament to praise, though, is not just exemplified in Psalm 22. It's actually emblematic of David's psalms as a whole, uh, mostly found in, uh, in books 1 and 2 of, of the Psalter, David continuously takes his lament and turns it to praise. You want proof? Look to, uh, look to verse 51, or excuse me, to Psalm 51, where David recognizes his sin for, from God, uh, in front of God, and it ends up turning from this recognition of sin and admonition of, uh, admonition of guilt into this declaration of praise. And it has one of the most beautiful endings in the Psalms, so I'll leave that one for you. But it's also emblematic of the entire book of Psalms as a whole. The Psalms start out with lament. 
barring Psalms 1 and 2, which are our introduction to the Psalms, Psalm 3 starts us off with lament right away. The psalmist, in a way not dissimilar to Psalm 22, is just airing out frustrations to God. But by the time we get to Psalm 150, things have changed. And there is nothing to be found but praise and an everlasting feeling of praise at that. And what we see is, throughout books 1 and 3 of the Psalms, the majority of the content is lament. In books 1 and 2, it's actually overwhelming. There's a significant disparity between lament and praise. Book 3 evens out the playing field, but by the time we get to books 4 and 5, it is almost exclusively praise. And the times when it's lament, it definitely turns to praise pretty quickly. It's amazing. But what's happening here is this isn't a pattern of artistry in the Psalms. This is the narrative of redemption. This is, I would argue, and I hope you agree, this is the pattern of Scripture. In the garden, Adam and Eve sin, and we all inherit sinfulness in ourselves. But God is working out a plan of salvation. At the beginning of Scripture, we see the disconnect between humanity and God, and by the end of Scripture, it is nothing but praise. John declaring Jesus' second coming and asking for him to come quickly. This is our reality. And as we look toward the gospel tonight, there's a beautiful truth in the gospel, and it's this. The truth of the gospel is that God is not content to leave us in the darkness of our sin. When, like David, we come to the weight of our separation from God, the cross doesn't allow us to stay there. Because that separation that we feel, fear from God, excuse me, that, that separation that we feel from God is taken upon Jesus. Jesus takes that separation upon himself so that we might be brought to life everlasting. As we continue, I want us to turn to Matthew 27. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? Um, Matthew 27, and we'll start in verse 35. And the reason I'll go to Matthew um, with our depiction of the cross, of Jesus' crucifixion and death, is because Matthew is the gospel writer who's focused most on Jesus fulfilling the words of the Old Testament. Not that the others aren't, but that Matthew emphasizes it the most. And if you had to guess, which passage of Scripture in the Old Testament do you think he references in Matthew 27? Let's find out for ourselves together. <laughs> Verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You are going... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. 
In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, menai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. On the cross, Jesus takes the sinfulness of humanity upon himself. And in doing this, he experiences the separation from God. Let us see if God comes and saves Jesus, the mockers say. And Jesus knows exactly what it's going to take to save humanity, to save the exact people who are scorning him. It's going to take separation from God. It's going to take, and what I mean by that is, it's going to take God allowing Jesus to die in place of us so that we don't have to pay that price. So that we would never turn to God and hear no answer, Jesus experiences abandonment by God. And in doing so, as he gives up his life, he quotes this Psalm 22, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people question whether or not Jesus is making reference to the whole psalm when he quotes just the first verse, as that was a practice, especially in Second Temple Judaism. Um, but whether or not he's doing that, Matthew is certainly making reference to the entirety of Psalm 22. We see the proof of it. Um, if we turn, if we look at verse 35, immediately we see proof of it. Verse 35, Jesus was crucified. In Psalm 22, 16, David says, they pierce my hands and feet. Evildoers surround me. They pierce my hands and feet. Verse 39, the mockers around Jesus hurl insults. They shake their heads. Almost exact verbiage from Psalm 22, verse 7. Actually, I'm going to pull it up real quick just so that you hear this. All who see me mock me. They're, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Is that not exactly what Matthew says? Verse 43, the chief priests and elders mock Jesus, saying, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. And David says the same thing. He says, Those who mock me say, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him, since he delights in him. And most emphatically, verse 46. Again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' perfect death on our behalf, he experiences abandonment by God so that we might turn to him in our times of trouble and even in our times of triumph and not be abandoned, not experience God not responding. Although it feels that way, it's never actually true of us. And that's only because of Jesus. With his perfect sacrifice, Jesus took our sin upon himself so that we might be made right before God. And just like David looks back to God's work for his ancestors for proof of his provision now, we too can look back on the cross and know of God's salvation, know of God's provision for us now. 
end. What's beautiful is that it doesn't end there. If I could guarantee that everybody was here now, would also be here with us on Sunday morning, I would almost be tempted to stop now. (laughs) But we have to make mention of the true end of the story. Because our reality is tonight is not the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. The reality is he resurrects. The reality is that though there's mourning here on Friday, Sunday is coming. And each of us will gather together to celebrate our risen Savior. I want to point us now just to, in our, in our wrapping up, just to our three main points for tonight, the three things that we touched on. The first that we discuss is that we have felt the brokenness, that feeling of separation from God. And the second, that God is not content to leave us there in the darkness of our sin. And lastly, as we go, will we keep this in mind? With his perfect sacrifice, Jesus took our sin upon himself that we might be made right before God. Again, Sunday is coming. We serve a Savior who is risen. Let us not forget that in our mourning. Allow us to sit in this, to consider Jesus' death, but with full confidence in his resurrection and confidence that as he resurrects, he brings us to new life as well. And like David, we also look forward to the future. We look forward, knowing he's coming again to make all things new, where sin and death are defeated once and for all. And where that feeling of separation from God is replaced with God making his dwelling place among his people. We serve a risen, victorious Savior. We, say, we serve one who paid the price for our sin. And we serve one who was raised to new life so that we also might be raised out of our sinfulness and into new life. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Let that be our cry tonight as we go and as we gather again tomorrow, or tomorrow, on Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection. Let's pray together. God, we are guilty before you. Tonight, we recognize that our sinfulness did come at a cross. That, God, you do not take sin lightly. That there is a price that needs to be paid for each and every transgression that we commit against you. And in saying that, we recognize that no sin is too small and no sin too big. And in that truth, we also recognize that no sin is too small or too big to not be covered by the blood of Jesus. In the death that we recognize tonight, Jesus, your death on the cross for us, God, we recognize that our sin, each and every one of our sins has been placed on you. We are guiltless before you, but not by any work that we've done, by the work that you've done for us in sending your son. From the beginning of scripture, you declared that you would send a savior and Jesus, we see that savior in you. We recognize our separation from you, but Lord, tonight, we know that that was all taken on Jesus. 
So as we go, Lord, help us to go knowing that our sin is significant. Our sin matters and it weighs heavy. But that that burden is no longer on us. And as we look forward to Sunday, eagerly anticipating an opportunity to change this morning to praise, this morning to celebration, God, we want the resurrection so badly. We thank you that the truth of your gospel is that Jesus did not just die for our sins, but he died and resurrected to new life. And again, we go through that same pattern. So Lord, as we come before you in worship, as we go, we know that we come before you blameless. In the blood of Jesus Christ, we are washed white. And we thank you for that truth. And it's only because of that truth that we get to sing to you now. We thank you and we praise you for who you are and for what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen.